Welcome to episode 49 of Say Who Say Pod. We're almost to 50, Danny. We're almost there. Almost we to half are- 100. Yeah, 49, 49 I've always felt like is it's seven squared. It's kind of a funky number that you wouldn't think is is a square. I've always liked 49. And is it, I, I feel like I saw this in on Twitter or Instagram somewhere. 49 is Thursday. Does that make sense? No. I don't know. Something about the number 49, like, fits nicely with Thursday as a day of the week. I see 49 <laughs> and I think Thursday. You had me going there for a second. For the number 47, for some reason, is important to people who went to Pomona, like my wife. And there's all sorts of references to 47. Like, basically, somebody, if if there was a writer on a show, there will be weird references to 47. I think Star Trek The Next Generation, which really sounds about right for someone who went to Pomona to write for Star Trek. That That's <laughs> that's the only deeper significance that I've ever heard of. A, I, I did not associate 49 with Thursday. I'm not feeling a day of the week for 47. I've got to be honest. <laughs> yeah. uh, he's Danny O'Neill. I'm Christian Capo. What time is it, Danny? Well, it's time to hear from the from the guys getting us ready to take the field. Pod. 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 Are you still laughing? That's what I that's what I say to myself when I, I walk through the tunnel to get to like the assembly room where they do interviews now. <laughs> just just the pod part though. Pod. <laughs> it still works. I'm still I'm still laughing. We can still use it. It would be funny if there was some sort of chant like right before deadline. <laughs> like, Who's gonna file on time tonight? That's me. That's me. <laughs> Who's gonna make no typos in their copy? That's me. That's me. <laughs> Shut up. Shut up. Uh, I'm writing. <laughs> Have you ever witnessed any legit like arguments press room related over the level of noise? Yes. Ooh. Was it a yes. good one? I don't want to say who. I don't want to hurt feelings, but no. I I'll, it was a it was a writer. Usually it's a writer directed at a TV person. I feel yes. like that's the, that, that's the most frequent interaction. Um, and it was just a, it was a very firm, like, Hey, I'm, I'm writing and all I can hear is your voice. Could you please shut up? You know? Um, (laughs) and the person shut, I do, I kind of laugh. Like I've heard stories of, you know, certain writers have like certain reputations around that sort of thing where it's like, Oh, like, you know, that guy, that guy will go off if, if people are being too chatty while he's on deadline or something yet they can file a running game story in an open air press box in a. 50,000 seat stadium, you know, like there's, I feel like you're covering a college basketball, any basket, excuse me, any basketball game, you're like out there, you're just kind of in the middle of the crowd and enveloped by noise. Like, so what you need, you, you can't concentrate through the whole game. Is that what you're saying? You need it. You need it silent. I generally think anyone who claim complains about noise in a press box is soft. Like, I yeah. ge- and, and that's, because when you type for a living, there's not a lot of toughness involved. So like there's, but <laughs> I really, I really, <laughs> I really, think, yeah, I mean, there's not like to say you're soft as a typer, like is, but man, like I have no patience for it. And there was a dude, uh, he covered the Kings for the Sacramento Bee back when I covered the Sonics, Marty McNeil and Marty's, Marty's one of my favorite 
he is hilarious. Like he was, and there were several personalities on the NBA beat that were just, and Marty was one of them. Um, he passed away a couple of years ago. Marty had a colleague, and I won't say who the colleague was, but there was a complaint from the colleague, someone who worked at the same paper, about turning down the volume on the TV. And I don't even think the game had started yet. I think it was still pregame. And Marty, as he told it, and he would kind of talk out the side of his mouth. He goes, so the next day I'm like, I got to see what was so great coming out of this columnist. And then he goes, they weren't even writing that day. <laughs> just the level of just wanted it and forever kind of held a grudge. I mean, that wasn't the only transgression by this specific person, but it started what would become uh, a very a very open uh, level of dislike between the two. It was it was hilarious. Um, truly, truly funny. The, the, the absurdity he found that the TV had been turned down by a reporter who was not on deadline. I feel like the proliferation of of noise canceling headphones and really just like the ease of wearing headphones and having access to headphones. You know, you can just you, most people use AirPods now. You just pop them right in your ears, whatever. Like, I feel like it's kind of eliminated any any like validity to people's complaints about noise around them, especially like on an airplane, for example. And I think like I've always thought this. I thought this before I had a kid, and I we haven't flown with our daughter yet, but. I was just thought like I would see you know you, you're waiting in the in the terminal and like you hear a baby crying or a kid screaming or whatever and you know I feel like the old stereotype is like oh you know hope they're not sitting next to me and I, like I only ever feel bad for the kids' parents. That's hundred percent because it's like that there is nobody in this airport who wants this kid to calm down more than their parents do, yeah. and I I felt that before I had a kid I'm sure I feel it more now like. Because that you know you, you don't want everybody looking at you and you know, how how self conscious you feel about like oh great my kid's yelling and I know that this is gonna bother people like I've been on a plane where a kid started yelling and I'm usually have my headphones on anyway I've been on flights where a, a kid was maybe yelling the whole time I didn't even know until we landed I took out my headphones and was like oh no that kid's upset so I I feel like in most settings like complaining about the noise around you is is soft to begin with but yeah I just but you know. If the if the if the TV camera guy's too chatty when you're on deadline, just put your headphones on. It'll it'll be it'll be okay. I promise. God, I I love near. I I love arguments between reporters. It's one of my favorite things. It can be entertaining. It's pretty. You don't get it a lot in Seattle. I feel like no. There's been no. some petty squabbles that I think you and I have both witnessed over the years. But yeah, I've been involved in one of them though. I buried the hatchet with Softy. Mm. So, That's right. Yeah, I think for so most that people, was, that was more of an online thing, though. <laughs> I think so. Although there was there was one time I got mad at him at a practice, at a Seahawks practice. I regretted that. That was a, that was a poor display on my part. Should we get to some Husky talk? Savelle Smalls entering the yeah. transfer portal. What am Savelle I to make Smalls. of this, Christian? Mildly surprised um, that it's in the middle of spring, but the window yep. did just open. So. This is the t- you know, and he got hurt too. Like I, I've written that a couple times. He hasn't practiced in a few. I feel like it was their first Friday scrimmage. I want to say, which would have been you know, almost two weeks ago now. Uh, he showed up to their next practice in a boot, so he he's been out. So it wasn't it wasn't remarkable that he wasn't at practice yesterday because he's he's been hurt. But 
Um, yeah, seems as if his his time as a Washington Husky is finished. This was going to be a big spring for him. Um, I feel like if you're in that edge rusher room, you know that you're competing just for a spot on the depth chart and not a starting job because mm-hmm. they've got Braylon Trice and Zion Tupuola Fatui back. Those are your starters. Everybody knows that. Um, this was going to be a big spring for Savelle Smalls to prove that he could be the kind of pass rusher they wanted him to be. I think Eric Schmidt, their edges coach, had talked about they were pretty pleased with how he'd been against the run. I think he'd made progress. I think the Alamo Bowl was maybe the best he'd played since the Kent State game. Like I feel like he had a really good opener, and then in the bowl game, and Schmidt had said his bowl prep was really good too. He'd look good in practices um, in December. I feel like in the bowl game, he had first contact on one of their like third and short or fourth and short stops that they got early on that was a, a big deal. I don't know if it went in the books as a TFL, but I remember him being in on a couple plays where you noticed him you know, a little bit more than you had all season. And it seemed like maybe that could be a springboard you know, into, okay, they had three guys at edge they really liked last year, Martin, Trice, and ZTF. Maybe with Martin moving on, Smalls could be that that number three guy that they feel really good about that top three again. And so, you know, I think they, they wanted to see, you know, some more explosion out of him in, in the pass rush um, this spring. And he got hurt. And, you know, I just wonder if knowing already that you're not – what you're competing for is not a starting job. And now I'm hurt and I'm not getting the reps. Um, you know, I just wonder if that all kind of combined to point toward, you know, I only got two years left at this thing and – you know, let me go see if I can find somewhere I can get on the field a little bit more. Fresh start. And it's not uncommon, I think, for there's been a coaching change. Although that, it seems it seems like this coaching staff has has really, I mean, there hasn't been a huge turnover in guys leaving because they didn't see a path to the field. They're, where there's sort of the new staff is like, let's get our guys in here. And, and I mean, you've seen a lot of players that that were recruits and that they inherited really figure into prominent roles. But I can also see from Smalls looking at this is kind of similar to Sam Heward, not at all how he imagined this was going to go. It's a different coach. It is gone through a terrible season absolutely sort of unspeakably bad uh jimmy lake's final year and and i could see the feeling of like i i do i want to get somewhere if if i'm going to be competing to be the fourth or fifth defensive end if i'm not the first guy in the in the rotation maybe take a shot somewhere else yeah uh, i think that has to be that has to be it right um i don't think that they you know i don't think he's he's in a position during spring practices, in the middle of spring practices, where coaches would have would have told him like, "Hey, here's what's here's where you stand," and you know maybe you'd be better off elsewhere. I don't think this that's that's what this situation is at all. There's no way that they would know what a, a playing time rotation is. No. They wouldn't even be able to estimate it at this point. I mean, you've got guys hurt, guys just getting in there. So I I think you're right about that. This is this is his perspective. Like this is what he's seeing. It's not reflection of how the coaches have stacked things up. Yeah, and I you know I think when you're from Seattle and you're playing for the hometown school, like you're you're always going to probably give it a little longer than you know if he'd gone to UCLA or or. 
um, a Big Ten school or something, and the last couple of years played out the way they did, you know, maybe maybe he wouldn't have stuck around this spring to see where it where it shook out. You know, maybe at the end of last season it would have been okay. Let me just make a clean break. Let me get somewhere for spring and go forward with my last two years. But you know, I. I I know he he had to have really, really wanted it to work, right? Because he had the kind of the twist and turn, you know, his recruitment was a journey um, Mm -hmm. that I'm sure he's got a different perspective on now that he's a little bit older. I know by the end of it, he was was sick of it and was glad that it was over. And he chose to stay home. You know, he's lived in the Seattle area his whole life. His his family's in Seattle. Um, I think he was, you know, it it was a big deal to his parents that he'd be able to, you know, stay home and, and they could go to half of his games every year without having to get on an, an airplane or, or, you know, spend money on travel and all that sort of stuff. So um, I think like Sam Heward, he he would have loved to have, you know, made it work for the hometown team and, and be that guy and star in Seattle. I know that that's what, they, that's what they pitched him on, you know, when they were battling a lot of other schools back when he was coming out of high school. Um, but it just, it you know, it just doesn't always work out for one reason or another. And you know, we'll we'll see. Like that was kind of the question with Sam Heward: was he going to try to stay in the Power Five? You know, what was he ended up prioritizing relationships and system fit, and went with his old OC at Cal Poly. We'll see kind of what uh, what Savell's priorities are as, as he looks for his next stop. This is why I hate recruiting. Like, right this these two stories specifically. If you lump in Sam with with Savell, I know why it's important. I also know that it gives and creates a very skewed sort of understanding of a, of a college player's career because with both Savelle and Sam, they were always going to be compared like what they did on the field would always be compared to the expectations or the projection that was put into their recruiting and how highly they were regarded and the rank and the number of stars. And I don't want to say that's bad because that can be a fun process for, for, for kids like that. That can be a fun process for high school seniors to see how they're evaluated to, to be courted by these schools has to be incredibly flattering. The other side of that is that when it doesn't work out, as well as was hoped for by all parties, there's kind of this emptiness that's left on the other side. And you can't talk about, I mean, I watched Savelle Smalls more than I would have an average recruit in that class. I paid attention when he was on the field because I was, I knew to look for him and that's a level of scrutiny kind of there's, it's not necessarily that either of those players did anything wrong. It might be as simple as a scheme fit or like there's so many things that go into that, but because of how recruiting works, you end up like you have a ruler that you're using to judge them that might not be accurate at all, either with regard to the situation the player is in or honestly, the the player's skills might not have been accurately assessed as a recruit. And so they get measured against what they were supposed to be instead of who they are. Yeah, and there's always going to be more scrutiny on the guy who was rated high and didn't end up putting up the production than there will be praise for the the fact that where were their two starters ranked, one of whom is a preseason All-American. 
They're both three star guys. Mm-hmm. They found you know ZTF watching tape of another somebody else, and just oh wow, who's this huge, fast like athletic number four guy just blowing guys up? Um, Braylon Trice was you know, he was a three star. He was he was sought after. You know, he had he had some offers. Oregon and Notre Dame, I think, were his other kind of finalists. But like, still not blue chip recruits, right? Those guys did not go in the books as blue chip recruits, and now here they're you know they're veterans and and entering the season as as sure starters for them. So um, you you win some and you lose some, right? It's edge rushers is, is going to be interesting now. Um, the depth behind Trice and ZTF, you're looking at. On the depth chart, yeah, I mean he's so that's that yeah that's kind of thing you said like there more than any other position there is no way for them to like tell guys hey here's where we see you because so many guys who are going to play haven't been practicing because they're out hurt. There's going to be two of these guys are going to be on the depth chart on day one: Sakai Afoa Asoa, Maurice Himes, Lance Holtzclaw, Zach Durfee, or. You know, maybe Milton Hopkins, the the walk on from O'Day, um, gets in there. He's been he's been seeing some reps. Um, he's an interesting athlete. Was a quarterback in high school. You know, I they've got Jacob Lane coming in um, in the twenty three class in the summer, but I don't know that he's somebody you'd identify as a guy who's going to play right away. They've got Anthony James, who was a a big recruiting win for them out of Texas. He's already in camp. Um, as an early enrollee, we haven't seen him do a lot, so it's it's hard to say. Um, but you know, out of all those names, like two two of those guys are going to be on the depth chart and are going to be in the rotation and are going to play. I feel like they've kind of gone back and forth on Voitunufi. Um, is he an interior D lineman? Is he an edge rusher? His weight has since he's gotten to college has just gone down, 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 down. He's listed at two forty nine now. But when they do drills and everything pre-practice, he's still with the the interior D lineman. He's still with the D tackles. So they haven't like moved him to edge rusher. But if you ask Kalen DeBoer, if you ask Eric Schmidt, they say like, yeah, you know, he's it's a good question. Like they're both like, yeah, we you know we're certainly looking at him that way. He did some stuff for us on you know third down packages last year that way. And I don't think people realize he had five sacks last season. You know, like he. ZTF had four and a half. Mm-hmm. So he he's just, he's a slippery, like tenacious, quick guy who, who has always like owned that. I remember the first time talking to him and him just being like, yeah, like I'm not the biggest guy. Speed is my thing. So that's what I've leaned into. And there's everything about his kind of college journey coupled with his production, frankly, the last two years to me says like, now, especially with Savelle Smalls moving on, and you just you do not have any established depth at all behind the starters, it makes it just makes too much sense to move him there, make it full time, change his position on the roster, put him with that edge rusher group, let him go through the summer at that position. He's already got, I think, a lot of the technique down. He already fits the position athletically. Um, I'm, I'm talking out what my column's going to be today, by the way. So. <laughs> By the time this podcast uh, publishes, you you'll have probably already read read some uh, analysis at onmontlake.com, the eighth ranked paid subscription site for sports on Substack. Currently. Hell yeah! Um, you know, think about subscribing. you gonna track you gonna you gonna track down Jabbar Kareem. You know what? Yeah. Kanzano Kanzano passed him. Kanzano's a monster. 
Yeah. But are, are you going to, like, Bill Walton uh, had the description when he was in the NBA uh, training all offseason on his bike. And every every time, like, what he would say to himself when he got, Jabbar. <laughs> Jabbar. I should do that. I should That's do that. That's exactly right. what you should do each morning when you, Jabbar. Mark Stein. <laughs> Steiny Mo. <laughs> uh, yeah i don't know it's fun because like you don't you, you have no idea like how far ahead or behind you are of like the people on the rankings so like, it's just kind of like anytime you move up it's kind of a surprise like oh hey cool um, <laughs> anyway. people should know we're talking about uh the sports newsletters the paid subscription site uh for substack and christian is in the top 10 number eight with a bullet on montlake.com among sports uh newsletters which is awesome yeah, I would not make the four team playoff, but if it were to expand to eight, I'd be I'd be the I'd be the eight seed. I'd be battling uh, Joe Posnanski in the first round. Hell yeah. <laughs> um. Anyway, I kind of think Voitanufi is is the answer at least to like get someone who knows the scheme and has has played a good amount of college football. They might have done that anyway. Like they were already talking going into the spring. They were like, yeah, he's gonna move around. Um. He even changed his number. He's not number ninety anymore. He's number fifty-two. So he fits right that in. Looks looks a little faster on the edge. It looks edgier, certainly. <laughs> it's an edgier number. So there's no there are no single digits available. That's as edgy as it gets. Did you did you hear the Deion Sanders quote? Like it, the clip of him talking about guys having dual numbers because I think he's done the whole thing. Like everybody gets their numbers given out to him again. Like he's not, nobody gets to keep their own one. He's, he's doing some sort of thing with the numbers. Oh, really? he was I hadn't seen that. No, where he's describing is it, it was the whole, you've got to earn your number thing. And he said, he said, and duplicate numbers. He goes, we never had those. He goes, if you got a duplicate number, that meant you were going to stay on the bench, <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was pretty funny because at some point, but that's really I I think even Dion saying that that's not necessarily true because I remember I he's remember dudes, the NFL right yeah but I no I think he was even saying because in in the NFL you can't have duplicate numbers um I think he was saying like when he was in college only the scrubs had like if if one guy wore 11 the other guy that wore 11 would suck like the 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 second the second guy with the number that was kind of a ticket a, a signal that he wasn't going to play. But I was like, that's never really been true at Washington. Like there have been tons of dudes no. that have like that you've had stars in both numbers. They're just on different sides of the ball. Yeah, especially like I think you can count on going forward that whoever's wearing number one will be your best receiver and your best DB, pretty much, yeah. or at least like your your most tenured. You know, whoever gets first choice, like Jordan Perryman came in and snagged number one on defense. He was a vet. He was, you know, say what you will say what you will about the season he had. He was always their best option when he was healthy and able to play, even at like sixty percent. Jabbar Muhammad came in, you know, the next the next transfer corner comes in and gets number one. Um, we'll see who gets it after Romo Dunze. I don't know. Do you what's the best number for an edge rusher? Is it in the 50s? I mean, that's LT legacy. Yeah, I feel like any number that starts with five kind of has that. It's got that edge about it. It's got that, like, this guy hits hard, you know? I've, all, I've always been partial to a high single digit, too, though. That's the that's the trend. That's what everybody wants now. So, like, ZTF switched to four. Yeah. 
He was 58. What, 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 did, what do you feel about 58? 58's a solid number. Like 50, 58 is a, for, you've got to be a game wrecker. Like the, the 50s are the men who commit mayhem. Like that's what I've, I've generally, it's a linebacker number usually, and then you get the edge rushers. Like if you wear a 50, like that's kind of a, an announcement that, that you're, not, you're not a real big thinker out there. You're, you're out there to cause some, cause some ruckus. Destruction, terror, and mayhem is, is the order of the day. So I, I liked 58. I feel like an 88 with a big neck roll could be a pretty intimidating. <laughs> Am I thinking of Caesar Rayford? Is that why? Caesar Rayford was all one of the all airport team guys. Like you yeah. wanted him getting off the bus first. He played the CFL for a while, didn't he? He did. He was a really, really, really talented guy. I love Caesar. Yeah. Um, so I, 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 yeah, I think I think 88, 55 is always a. You know, if you're, you, I think that the double, the double digits can, you know, 44, uh, 33 is like, I don't even know who would wear 33. That's like That's a, a tight end number. pullback. Yeah. yeah. Jack Westover. Yeah. He's 37. Yeah. 37. You like, see, I, and I feel like someone like Jack Westover probably, like he, he was, came in as a walk on probably, I'm sure it was just given that number. And then, you know, so I've talked to some guys before who were like, yeah, like I, I got, they just gave me the number that, that I have. I didn't have any say, and I was like ugly, and I was like, yeah, as soon as I can get rid of this, I'm getting rid of it. But then like they got to play a little and establish themselves a little wearing that number, and then they, you know, couldn't part with it, didn't want to let it go. And we're like, oh, I'm just going to, you know, I'll hold on to it. Like I made my name wearing this, I'm going to I'm gonna keep it. So I think I think Westover's been in that program. He's rolling into his sixth year with, with, with the, the 37, so. You know, it's worked well for him. I, I still, one of my favorite moments of last season was the Petros Papadakis the commentary mouthpiece. on his mouthpiece. <laughs> <laughs> it was so uh, great. I was talking to his dad recently, Westover's dad. Uh, oh, I thought you were going to say Papadakis' dad. <laughs> I was like, that's one I'd be interested in because I believe he owns a restaurant down there. Oh, really? Yeah, I think so. Um, and I was like, we got to, we got to see some more hurdles this year out of Jack. He can get up. He'd be so, fun. He'd be one that sometimes they do like a team dunk contest or whatever. I'd be interested to see how he'd fare in that. Jimmy Graham had a hurdle in a game. It was, I Did think he? it was a Monday, Monday night game against the bills and he hurdled somebody. It was awesome for the Seahawks. Yeah, he did. <laughs> Most people wow. have wiped it, wiped his, his trade clean. He was actually a much more productive player than, in, in Seattle than people give him credit for. I was just going to say, I feel like the the vibe was always that that was such a horrible trade and he wasn't Jimmy Graham anymore. But if you look at the numbers, you'd be like, oh, huh. I didn't realize he, you know, I didn't realize he caught that many passes. He, I mean, he's been the, he was the most prolific receiving tight end in Seahawks history. And it's not like that's a huge, like incredible list that they've had. But like, despite all of what people said, like he, he was their most prolific tight end receiving tight end in, in franchise history. Like he was a good player. Will Disley's coming for him. Ha, <laughs> dude, I love Disley. I, Disley, so Disley's remarkable for a number of reasons, but, but it's amazing to me to watch him and to see why more NFL teams don't find a dude like him. And maybe it's that there's just not that many guys. Because Disley, the biggest thing that happens to Disley is they don't think he's fast. But he's faster 
than other guys that are as strong as him. So it creates this very weird mismatch where it's like if you if you put a fast middle linebacker on him, the middle linebacker is going to keep up with him. But if you put a slower linebacker on him, like he can actually outrun that guy. And anybody who's as fast as him, he's definitely stronger than. So it creates these weird matchups. Um, and then you throw in the fact he's got awesome hands. Like, really, really good hands. Like, not even good hands for being a convert from the defensive side of the football. He's got really good hands. I still remember when they switched him to tight end thinking, like, oh, that's too bad, you know, that it just kind of didn't work out for him. Like, because he, he, he played as a true freshman. He played enough. He didn't redshirt um, Chris Peterson's very first year. He was part of that first recruiting class. He was the, he was the really rare nowadays two-star recruit. You don't see a lot of two-star recruits. Yeah. Either a guy's a three-star three or he doesn't have a rating. But I remember he was the rare two-star recruit. I think Boise was his only offer. He was all set to go to Boise State with Chris Peterson. Only reason he wound up at Washington is because Peterson came to UW um, and brought him with him. And he played enough as a true freshman to think, like, oh, like you know, this guy might be in the rotation. You're the D-line down, down the road. And... Um, they wound up having other guys. He kind of took a back seat. They moved him to tight end. And I remember thinking, like, oh, like, you know, that's cool. He's gonna he's gonna give it the old college try. You know, stick around and just do you know, do whatever the team needs, just so he can keep playing. You know, playing football. Like, you know, good for him. Too bad it didn't work out for him, though. You know, like, yeah, it's, it's too bad that you know the guy's switching positions and and then it's like, oh no, no, he's he's an NFL tight end. <laughs> like, he, he's actually like a really good blocker, and they love him, and he's really good in the run game and. He didn't catch a lot of passes in college. He was one that Jake Browning, when we talked a couple of years ago, he was like, yeah, he was a guy we, we probably should have thrown the ball to more. Was he surprised or were the Huskies surprised he went in the fourth round? I, I, I was I was surprised. Um, Maybe not because he did get invited to the combine. Yeah. So I, I was I remember being surprised when he got invited to the combine because like. You know, I I had obviously like changed my opinion of him as a player by then. I was like, oh, like this guy's a nice yeah. tight end for UW. You know, he fits their system very well. Um, I remember when he got the combine invite, I was like, oh, wow, like that's the NFL is like interested enough in him. And it's funny because that same story I did with with Browning talking about his receiving targets. He'd said that uh, they were they had like an an agent day every year, or like an NFL day every year, where Peterson would bring people in to talk and. You know, here's what the draft process is like, and and Jake was on his way to it, and Disley was wasn't wasn't gonna go. Um, was was like <laughs> he's like, oh well, I don't need to go to that. And I, I don't know if Browning convinced him or what, but he was like, ah, just come. And so he wound up going, and then yeah, he, he, Jake said after he got drafted, or maybe even like a couple years into his career, he was like, hey, like I bet I'm bet you glad you went to that that NFL day, you know, back under Chris Peterson. So I think it even maybe. It, it, you know, at, a, at least at a certain point, would have surprised Will Disley if you'd told him, "Hey, you're going to be a, a fourth round pick." Obviously, you know he. It didn't take long into his rookie year for him to prove to himself and everybody else that he he belonged there. But yeah, I mean, the, the, it was a classic case of like he was seen as the blocking tight end, and they under they underestimated like he's he's better he's a better receiver than your. Than the than the guy who goes in there to never catch passes. Um, what do you think? I think it's interesting to contrast. We started the show talking about Savelle Smalls, and uh, 
and I don't want this to be sort of a what went wrong with him, but you contrast that's a five-star recruit and someone who, along with Sam Heward, sort of are characterized as these make-or-break recruiting classes. If, if Savelle Smalls and Sam Heward had signed elsewhere coming out of high school, there would have been a panic about what it said about recruiting within the state. And honestly, that's probably pretty fair because those guys, like that's how prominent they were as recruits. That's how well-regarded they were as recruits. And then you go to someone like Will Disley, a two-star recruit and someone whose only offer was Boise. And I mean, maybe that's a reflection of geography. And for as much as people will say, hey, like there's camps nowadays, the internet makes it possible to get film of everybody. You see it. It's wild to see how dramatically wrong that process can be sometimes in both directions. Um, because like, it's not like Will Disley has gotten f- like measurably faster. Like he's always been a, a strong, fast dude. The idea that he is an NFL tight end when he was recruited as a two-star defensive lineman is really wild when you think about it. Yeah, it, it's so much of it and like so much of life is just fit and opportunity. Yeah. Right? Like maybe he wouldn't have ever developed into the the kind of tight end that he did if he'd gone to well, you know, shoot, he's from uh Bozeman, Montana. Yep. You know, what if he stays home and plays for Montana State and is like an elite level D end in, in FCS? You know, does does he develop enough to be and and if he's going to be an NFL defensive end, is someone at some point going to look at him and say that guy has an NFL tight end body? Mm-hmm. We're going to move him. Not if he's getting ten sacks a year playing yeah. D end, big sky. So, you know, the fact that he comes to Washington and it doesn't make sense for him to continue playing D line because the opportunity's not there, and he has a coaching staff that really likes him and likes his traits and likes the way he approaches the game and says okay, what do we do with this guy? You know what? Let's try him at tight end. I bet it'll, you know, how many other schools that he could have gone to would would have put him on that path? So, yeah, I'm not saying like, oh, it's only because of Washington's coaching genius that Will Disley was an NFL player. Like, I, you know, obviously, if you're an NFL talent, you're an NFL talent. But, I mean, I just think like, ta- you know, opportunity and fit dictates so much of that stuff on, on the margins anyway. Maybe it's that idea of instead of looking at what went wrong, it's kind of that question of look at how many things have to go right for a player to turn out to to sort of fully maximize all of their potential. And that at any step of the process for regardless of how talented the player is, if a couple things don't click or you don't make the right connection, it can throw everything else off and that the the fact that someone's transferring from a program isn't a reflection of anything that anyone did wrong specifically of it just didn't click here. So why mm-hmm. not take a shot somewhere else? Because, and maybe that is the, the better way to think about it, that you're going to have to, you're going to have to have some things break for you essentially. And, and hopefully, hopefully it happens because there's a lot of things that have to go right for you to come out on the other end feeling that like, yeah, I got everything out of my football career that I could. 
I don't think I quite follow the Seahawks closely enough to know like what is Will Disley's exact status right now. Well, he's coming back from somewhat of a gnarly injury, um, but I mean they're expecting him to to be back. Uh, he was he was someone whose free agent market a year ago was significantly greater than than people expected it to be, um, and the Seahawks ended up having to to match an offer from from San Diego to keep him. Um, I, I think the expectation is that he's going to be back. I don't know if they, if they know if he's going to be ready when the season starts. Yeah. Just, it it feels like every time he's healthy, like he makes a play immediately and you're like, man, it's so nice. They they don't, they got Will Disley back, but he's had some, had some tough injury luck for sure. Dude, there are some dude, and he's one of them. Where the word injury prone gets thrown around, and I mean, there's there's a reason for it. Like the number one indicator of suffering an injury is that you've suffered an injury to that body part before, right? Like that's that's the number one. And then there's other things where you're just like, dude, it's just cursed or bad luck or, I mean, Dave Wyman has had like 19 surgeries, and Dave will say that like ever since he was a kid like if there was an accident somewhere he was the one that was ended up hurt always like it was just like three kids riding their bikes and everybody crashes and he's the one that would break his collarbone um it it stinks like and there's no and and i guess the reason that i hate describing people as injury prone players as injury prone is because you're like dude they're putting like he's going through like he's subjecting his body to this massive trauma yeah. And and somehow to like imply like he's injury prone makes it seem like he's fragile when it's just like, dude, have you seen what he's asked to do on a daily basis? <laughs> like it's uh. this guy who regularly collides with other like elite athletic grown humans, um, you know, has broken a bone twice. <laughs> it's a crazy... you're right though. Like I think for some people, injury prone is synonymous with soft. Oh. Which is ridiculous. Yeah. How, like, oh, that guy's, you know, that guy's ACL tears way too easily. You know, what? He, he, he's soft. Yeah. Like, oh, he keeps getting hurt. You know, he, he, keeps, he, he keeps getting these injuries that require major surgeries and then nine months to recover. You know, like, the, like as if there was anything that, that he could have done to avoid it. It's a, it might be endemic to football too. And maybe to all, all, sports of that sort of you've got to play through it and the idea that there's a difference between hurt and injured hurt is something you can play through and injury is something that like you can't you can't get through but it's so like I remember even a couple years ago when Josh Rosen was when he came out of the game against UW and it leads to this whole questioning of how tough uh, a player is and man it's such a hard it's such a hard thing because essentially it is in a football team's best interest to have someone who will constantly put themselves and their body in a compromised state back out on the field because they can. And so when that gets, I don't want to take it away and say, because it is really admirable when people play through an injury, but it's the expectation that they should is something that absolutely like it, it it rubs against everything that I I feel about how sports should work because I know that that storyline 
is something that benefits the team and it can also be promoted by people who type and who think that softness and is is your ability to type through background noise <laughs> yeah i pulled a calf like, muscle who... running out of the batter's box at a men's league softball game a couple of weeks ago <laughs> so you know so wild like you think about that like rosen's injury was like was it no it was a concussion wasn't it yeah i well you talking about the 2017 game where Vita Vea was, you know, hit him a million times. Is the game he came out of, and then Brock Heward was calling it, and then Jim Mora went nuts on Brock after that. It was at yeah. Husky Stadium. Yeah, yeah, that was 2017. Yeah, like that idea of like, oh, is he tough enough to play through it? Like, like he should play through a, a, a head injury, and and I know that those sort of things reflect how teams. How, how scouts and, and people do look at it because it is a valuable trait for them. But it's like, but we shouldn't run cover for them. If they want to say that they want a guy to play through injury, they should have to say that. Like not, we shouldn't be building up that expectation. Yeah. I was, I was talking to Alex Cook after pro day and I kind of knew he was, he was playing through an injury all year. They didn't, you know, they never said anything publicly and he would say he was fine or whatever. But then, he, you know, he, after after his pro day said yeah i he put up 10 reps of 225 pounds on the bench press and was really happy with that because he's like i know that doesn't seem like a, a great number but he's like a couple of weeks ago i could do i could barely do one because i haven't benched since like last summer because he separate he, he had a an ac joint sprain in his mm-hmm. shoulder in fall camp and so they were like okay no more you know, no, no more upper body lifting for you for the season. So he played through that all year. And I was like, is that, I'm like, that's, you know, can't be the easiest thing, right? Like that's, is that, is that frustrating at all to, to have to deal with? And he was like, I mean, if you want to go stand on the sideline, cause your shoulder hurts a little bit, then, you know, go ahead, I guess. But, but you know, because that's, it's football, that's the mentality. And so I think, yeah, for people in our position, it's weird because you you know like intellectually that everybody out there is hurt in mm-hmm. some way. Like nobody's walking into a football game like, ah, I feel great, you know, like this is the best I've ever felt. I you know, everybody's got like Romo Dunze played hurt all last year, all mm-hmm. last season. And he's talked about that this spring that like yeah, like uh, he still doesn't believe if you watch tape of him last year that that was everything he is as a player because of those nagging injuries. And he's like, I'm more explosive than you saw last year. I can be better after the catch. I can be better with the ball in my hands than what you saw last year because I was trying to shake off these nagging little injuries that, you know, wasn't enough to keep him out of a game other than Portland State, but he would have played against anybody else, but was enough to, you know, was he 90%? Was he 80%? You know, who knows? So, like, we we know that every single player is dealing with something like that to an extent, but you just don't it's so universal and like i think we make the assumption that it's understood by everybody you just don't talk about it you just don't mention it you know and there's never like yeah like a a guy's either he's either playing or he's not right he's either mm-hmm. out or he's in and we do this with long term injuries too like oh acl oh, that sucks what's the timetable 6 to 9 months okay see you in 9 months and in 9 months you'll be 100% totally normal everything you know just the same player you were before you know, oh, he's back this week. Okay, well, the expectation is up here. You know, he, he okay. Well, he's back, but he really his knee really hurts. He's back, but 
he's still thinking about every step because he was hurt on a non-contact injury and he's worried like, oh, if I step wrong, am I going to blow my knee out? You know, there's a million things like that 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 guys are dealing, you know, basically every player on every team is is dealing with to some extent. And yeah, it kind of, it's so universal that it doesn't get talked about because it's just assumed. Have you, and we talked about this a little bit during the season, have you decoded DeBoer's sort of in injury talk his his terms and and how you can how you can read implied availability based on what he says he's do i do i dare do i dare say he's pretty honest he like, he is honest he's more honest than any college coach that i can remember in quite some time which i find really refreshing it's tough because like oh we you know there's a there's a chance he could play this week has gone mm-hmm. both ways Oh really? Okay. Which is See, like, well, that's what a chance means, that's right? That's interesting. Yeah. So it's like, uh, you know, probably not. If he says probably not this week, you can count him out. Okay. Um, if he says there's a chance, you can be hopeful, but that guy's probably not playing every snap. Mm-hmm. Um, if he says, you know, we we feel. We're 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 pretty optimistic he'll be back this week. I I've gathered he really doesn't like to overpromise. Mm-hmm. I don't think most coaches do. Um I think you can basically count on like I, I think he was like he almost kind of felt bad a couple times last year where I think it was with Perryman and Jackson Kirkland early on, where he'd kind of said like that they were hopeful or optimistic and then they didn't play. I think he almost kind of was like, Oh, like I feel like you know, I set people up to expect a certain. So, no, I think he, I don't think he obfuscates any more than, like, I'm not going to tell you what the injury is. I'm not going to tell you what's hurt. Like, I'm yeah. not going to let, you know, give our opponents a scouting report on which body part to target on Saturday. But he's, I feel like he is pretty straightforward when it comes to availability. And, you know, and certainly, like, in the spring, Hey, is this something that's, that could extend into fall? You know, you're going to get like a pretty healthy, like yes or no on that. Yeah. Pete, Pete does overpromise. Like Pete Carroll's, if he says there's a chance he's going to play this week, that's like 80% certainty he's not playing. If he says like we think he's got a chance, like that means that like it is the chance is, is fairly small. If, if he says should be ready to go, then you're then you're in like a 50 50 category like basically what i was like you've got to move everything like two slots to the left of what it sounds like (laughs) like if he should be ready this week sounds like okay he's gonna play right i was like nah that's that's really more more coin flip territory of like they they feel pretty good about him having a chance to play but it's it's a chance Um, i like when i like when he says a guy was out there running around (laughs) that's a good one too He's good. He's good. He's out there running around. He's yeah. running, he's <laughs> yeah. running backwards. He's running circles. He's out there. I had to get him off the field trying to, you know, trying to run plays and he's running. He's running in and out and he's looking looks good. He's looking he's running around. Uh he my favorite thing is when when a guy has to when a guy suffers a season ending injury, Pete will say, We're gonna have to take care of him. Oh yes. That's the old <laughs> classic standby. Which just just sounds no. like Yeah. <laughs> there was one time where Bob Condota asked Pete, I can't remember which position it was, but they'd suffered a couple injuries. And Bob says, do you feel like you might need to get a couple more bodies at linebacker? 
And Pete looks at me and goes, that's kind of grim. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, preferably live ones. Uh, ambulatory. I, I just, I, I always, like when I, when I heard it, I flashed back to Die Hard where the, the helicopter crashes and uh, Deputy Chief Dwayne T. Robinson says, we're going to need some more FBI guys. <laughs> <laughs> are, you a, are you a spring game guy? I like the spring game. Yeah. Spring I do preview. enjoy the spring game. I'm spring not preview, going to I it. Say. I, I, I'm, I'm not going to it this year. There was some discussion about whether or not we were going to do that, mm. uh, but I'm not going to it this then year. You don't like it that much. That's true. That's you don't true. like it as you don't like it as much as approximately two thousand people. That's how many people are. are well, I are, feel are like headed... that's, historically that's about what you can expect for a UW spring game. This the is not spring... a thing, you know. Yeah, the spring game did inspire one of my favorite editorials ever in the UW Daily. Oh, Sonny Wu in Rick Neuheisel's first year because they they always made it a game. Like it was, there were two sides and they, I mean, there were definitely contrived elements to it, but it was a game. And when Neuheisel came, they, they did away with the the game part of it and became, it was, it was more like a, a scrimmage that wasn't, it wasn't played under like the constraints of a game. And, and Sonny wrote a column about how terrible that was of like, God, we should at least be able to see a game. Instead, we got this cockamamie practice that we've got to watch, which I thought I really enjoyed. I felt like it was everything a school paper should do. Yeah, school student newspapers aren't, uh, they don't take enough chances anymore, I feel like. They're more buttoned up. Yeah, we were, I'm trying to think, we did some definitely unprofessional things during the Apple Cup. Like, I remember that being fast. That's one does. And then there was, there was an April Fool's issue in which Eddie Vedder, it was kind of right at this point where everybody at the, in the, the arts section of the Daily decided they hated Eddie Vedder because they liked Nirvana more. And so they, they decided Eddie Vedder liked publicity, but what he really liked was complaining about the publicity he got. So every story had, like, Eddie Vedder, either a comment or Eddie Vedder chose not to comment on this indoor track story. And then there was a, a centerpiece <laughs> like with a fake interview with Eddie Vedder. I remember that being, being somewhat funny. The funniest thing that happened though, when I was at the daily, um, there was, he was one of the, he might've been the first sports editor when I got there. Um, dude named Drake with who ended up being the editor in chief when they were searching for the new president. So it was the president to replace Gerberding. Uh, Drake, who had been the editor-in-chief and I think at that point was a reporter, uh, got a series of scoops about who they were interviewing. And that included at one point he had the the fake name that the Arizona State, some one of their administrators, had when he came to SeaTac. And so he was like, I even remember, that I think the name was Lingenbrink. Like Kelly Lingenbrink was this guy's pseudonym when he got off the plane. And... So the Board of Regents was super worried about, like, how is this guy, how is this student reporter getting this information? At a subsequent Board of Regents meeting, it was noticed that there was a jacket left in the, in the, like, in the, the theater seats. I'm not sure which classroom it was in, but there was a jacket that was left in there, and it had a tape recorder running in the pocket. 
Oh my god! Which is super illegal. Ooh. You you cannot tape record people when they don't uh, know about it. And it was Drake's, and Drake got arrested. <laughs> 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 and and Drake had uh, an internship lined up at the Chronicle of Higher Education, and then after that was oh, going to no. go to the Baltimore Sun. And the Chronicle of Higher Education ran a brief about Drake getting arrested without them realizing it was their intern. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. Can you imagine the advisor, the newspaper advisor, getting that call? We've we've recovered a coat. It's a tape recorder running in the pocket. Oh my god! The fun one of my favorite like daily shenanigans stories when my my uncle uh, Jim Capel who worked at ESPN for a long time he was there in uh, uh, the the early eighties they on the their first edition for fall quarter um, printed a welcome we a welcome to UW map for for incoming freshmen with all the buildings <laughs> in the wrong places yes <laughs> which was hilarious. He did UW um, either the magazine or like their own news arm or whatever did a story on that a few years back. Um, it was pretty <laughs> funny when he did his he did a um, a tour of like all the colleges who were still playing in the NCAA um, men's basketball tournament in like 2005. I want to say it was when UW was good and, and in it. Um, and they stopped by a couple of um, of the student newspapers and tried to convince them to do it, and nobody would. <laughs> it's a good idea. Um, yeah, spring spring preview, spring preview on Saturday, and it, DeBoer has made clear it's not going to be a full on game. It's basically just a an open scrimmage, which like that's what you. What's the difference, right? Like, does it need to be a? I mean, people get so bent out of shape when it's like, oh, they used to draft teams, and there was a purple and a white team, and they would play a real game, and it's like, well. All you want to see is just 11 on 11 tackle football. What does it matter if there's like a score or whatever, you know? And I'm sure they'll score it some way. It won't be like an actual like football scoring system, but you know, they'll be they'll be running and catching and exciting punting. Do you feel and I saw ESPN had a story, ESPN.com had a story this week talking about I think it quoted Penix saying we're shooting for a national championship. Do you feel there's been buzz about Washington at a national level over the course of yeah, the spring? I think so. You know, you've seen national media outlets like The Athletic show how much they value UW's position in the world. Sorry. Couldn't help it. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, there's been there's been some buzz nationally. Um, no, but I I think so. Like they they're going to show up in every every top 10 you know, or top 15. I did see ESPN's FPI had them like 20th or 21st, which mm-hmm. was a little bit surprised by. Um, I, I think uh, when you've got the the quarterback that accelerates the conversation. So I think Penix coming back and, you know, being like one of those like top three or four guys who are mentioned, uh, you know, he'll be, he'll be in the Heisman watch every week until, you know, he either has a terrible game or they lose, you know, assuming either of those things happens. So yeah, I think there's some buzz. I don't think there's any national buzz about, you know, them being a legitimate national title contender. I, you know, I, until 
Georgia like shutters the program. I, I don't. You know, is, is anybody else really a, a legitimate title contender until until Georgia doesn't win one again with the way they've got it rolling? Do you think college football has become more of a regional sport? And and I ask it so. I'm a child of the '80s, and in the '80s, things were a lot different in terms of TV. And I think that's probably one of the main differences is that like you didn't have access to your all your local baseball teams games so you would watch like it, baseball was a more national sport because of that because just the availability of it during the regular season was limited so you watched kind of the games that were on on Saturdays like the game of the week and college football in in a similar way was was more national baseball has definitely become almost entirely a regional sport like the the interest that people know a lot more about their individual teams and a lot less about the league at large. The NFL clearly is a national sport. The NBA, I would say, is is more national than local. Like the 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 stars that drive that league and its recognition, like it's about national prominent, like high profile stars. And college football seems to me has, even though it's it's got kind of the overarching. Structure is national. It's become much more regionally defined. And maybe that as much as anything explains in some ways the decline of or the percept the decline in perception of the Pac Ten because it's on a TV window that's completely outside the rest of the country's frame of reference. Yeah, I feel like it's it's become <clears throat> it's definitely become more regional out here you know, on the mm-hmm. West Coast, you know, almost defiantly so. Yeah. You know, like almost like a, it well, if the rest of you aren't going to pay attention to us and like talk about us like we're a, you know, a, a a lower tier conference, then you know we'll do our own thing, type of thing. Like I, you know, we've talked about it before. I I would always rather watch Wazoo against Arizona State at seven thirty than you know whatever the game of the week on CBS is and the SEC. And um, you know, I, I I do think that there's less attention paid to the play and some of it is just like a a beating down of the collective psyche of every fan base that isn't those 6 to 8 schools who actually have a chance to win a title every year and like i, I if you're in the Pac-12 i think going to the playoff first of all there's a gigantic gigantic gulf between being able to compete for a national championship and being able to get into the four team field and it's already really hard to get into the four-team field if you're in the Pac-12. No team's done it since Washington in 2016, you know? So this could be year seven where there is no Pac-12 team represented. So, like, that's that's been a bridge too far anyway to begin with. And look at how far even Washington was, that 2016 Washington team. Look at how far they were from being able to say they were true national championship contenders. Now, they were in that game against Alabama for a while, their defense held their own, um, but like yeah. a re- a record-setting offense with the sixth-place Heisman finisher at quarterback, who set records for you know single-season yards and touchdowns, with a top-ten pick at receiver, wasn't good enough to score more than once. Yeah, against. they had that. Yeah. So, like I, TCU was one of the last two teams standing last year. And they lost 65 to 7. <laughs> Dude, they they were is... good enough to beat 
one of the four teams who got into the field with them and were not good enough to scrimmage against the national champion. That game was so funny. I know. It, like it, was, ge- so, it was so predictable. Yeah. It, it was it like would, Georgia Georgia nearly lost. Oh, now Georgia damn near lost to Ohio State. I mean, you got to yes, put that out. Like they were not uh, they were not impenetrable. They were not unbeatable. Um but TCU wasn't going to beat them. <laughs> <laughs> it was like Georgia Georgia was like, wow, that was way too close. And this next yeah. team we're playing is not nearly as good as that team that almost beat us and so let's like let's show everybody that yeah, this is still Georgia. This is this is what Georgia is. Or, you know, you could just play Kirby Smart's pregame speech. And that's all, like, that's all you need to know about how, where, where George's mindset was going into that game. But I say all that just like, I feel like the CF, winning a title feels so far away. And getting into the field, even though getting into the field is just the first part of it, also feels so far away. Yeah, I feel like if you're a Pac-12 fan, it's just, hey, you know, beat your rivals and win the conference. And see where that gets you. You know, and that's all you have control over anyway. It's worth a conversation each and every week. Uh, I, Ian McFarland, who is a loyal listener to Say Who, Say Pod, and someone who runs a consulting business, IP McFarland. You can reach them at ipmcfarland.com. It's worth a conversation if you're looking to either establish or grow a customer base. You've got a product that you're looking to bring to market. It's worth a conversation with Ian. And this week... He's got a he's Dave Avramovich, a high school coach, uh, is is the one who's providing the question that Christian and I are going to discuss. I'm a high school football coach in the area and a huge Husky fan ever since my first game at Husky Stadium in 1989. We had a couple kids that weren't able to afford to play football in our football program, and the IP McFarland Company launched a fundraiser among the people they knew to make sure all these kids could fully participate in our football program. They're a trustworthy company that gets proven results. Huge thanks to them. And check them out, ipmcfarland.com. My question is about the new coaching staff's culture building. Coach Peterson had built for life. He borrowed heavily from the ideas in Patrick Lanchoni's ideal team player, Hungry, Humble, Smart. Curious if you could talk about the ways that Coach DeBoer is building cult- culture. What's the language, cultural vision? What's on the walls in the locker room, in the meeting rooms, in the weight room? You see the community service and the children's hospital visits. How is it similar and or different from built for life? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I'd probably have to ask some more questions to drill down on some of that stuff specifically. As far as like the language that they've that they use, um, when you walk out of the tunnel into the stadium, there's you could tell it's. I know it's new because it's it's everything that DeBoer talks about. There's the one and O is in big bold white letters. The one and O mindset. They talk about that all the time. Um, there's start fast middle eight and finish. And I forget if it's finish or finish strong. Um, they're big, you know, those are their three emphasis as far as like football. That's kind of what every, you know, what all of their stuff is geared toward middle eight, of course, being last, last four minutes of the first half, first four minutes of the last half, second half. Um, I know they, they, they've got the, um, the TNT sign, which is stands for takes no talent. And it's filled with, all kinds of different words. Um, and yeah, I, off the top of my head, like maybe there's, you know, being on time, maximum effort, um, being coachable in, in 
I don't know if those exact phrases are on there, but it's sort of in that vein. Stuff that you control. Every individual controls has nothing to do with how where your skill set is or how athletic you are, how big you are. Um, and I, I think like if they, if they make mental errors or whatever, they commit penalties, stuff you have control over during practice. You got to like go and run and touch the sign and come back. And, um, yeah, that's more like football centric. The, the questions asked, you know, more, Hey, what, what's, what sort of DeBoer's version of built for life? Um, I don't have a great answer for that. You know, it's not something that I've, I've really talked with him about. Um, I'm going to get the chance to, um, get some time with him soon and, and I'll I'll definitely dig into that more. I know that they are very intentional about bringing the players in to that process. So I would imagine that a lot of it is, you know, built for life adjacent because a lot of the leaders who they involved in sort of setting the foundation last year were Chris Peterson guys. And I think it kind of seen, you know, how how that culture worked and, and we're, we're pleased with the results, obviously. So, um, I'm sure it, it, yeah, I don't want to say it like borrows from it directly in terms of DeBoer sitting down with Peterson or something and saying like, Hey, what do you do? I'm going to do that too. I just think there were some, there's some kind of universal principles just about the way you treat people and the way you approach your life, um, off the field and, you know, the way that you prepare for things and prepare for your future beyond football and those sort of things that I'm sure are, are emphasized, but um, I, I I will ask some questions and and try to come up with a, a little bit more specific response because that is yeah like I feel like over the years we kind of got to know Chris Peterson's whole reading library right like all the leadership books and and the principles that he borrowed from and you know guys like John Gordon and um, E plus R equals O and and all those sort of things uh, I don't quite have Kalen DeBoer's lexicon down on that uh, on that front just yet. One of the things about covering Pete Carroll's team with the Seahawks that was so different is that I had never thought about or covered a coach that provided something more than strategy. That really, like beyond foot, football structure. Like Mike Holmgren is, in my mind, a Hall of Fame level coach. But his framework is very much sort of employment oriented like we're gonna we're gonna go through i'm gonna outline the responsibilities to you and it's your job to fulfill those and we're gonna put support mechanisms here to help you in all regards in terms of from health and fitness to nutrition and all of those things but it's your your job your job is to is to take advantage of the program that we have here and i'm not gonna hold your hand um and and Jim Mora, I would say, was even a little more old school than that, like longer practices and sort of that more demanding. It's a different way of looking at a team and how you bring the best out, because really what you're talking about is maximizing. How do you best maximize the potential of your players? And for a long time, Pete was considered too soft and you'll even hear people today that still consider him too soft the handle is players coach right like that and it means that someone who doesn't who doesn't say no and really it's about doesn't lead by by using fear and and that is true like pete doesn't employ fear like it it's not a it's it's not a level of i'm going to scare you into or threaten your job to make sure that i get the last little bit of toothpaste out of the tube like that he he really believes that 
what what allows you to get the most toothpaste out of the tube most consistently is is through positive encouragement and sort of holding out a vision for what that player can be and letting them shoot to attain it and that when you when you motivate through fear that there's always a limit to how hard that guy's going to play for you because they're going to play someone who needs to be motivated by fear will only play hard enough to avoid making you mad to avoid disappointing you avoid avoid sort of that negative consequence where if on the other side you get someone playing because of how great they can be that there's no limit to how far that can take you and some of it's hokey right like and there are there are times i can i can remember the the first time i saw pete speak um for a regular sort of business client like a business lunch it was a breakfast down at the, I think it was the um, Fairmont downtown, and it was some breakfast club. It wasn't the Bellevue Rotary Club, but one of those sort of community, I think it was sponsored by the Puget Sound Business Journal. And Pete starts talking about how you have to have a philosophy, and the philosophy is what is going to guide you, and you should be able to spell out your philosophy in 25 words or less. And if you can't spell out your philosophy in 25 words or less, how do you expect your employees to know what you want from them? You need to have it like, and as he's saying, I was like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. Like that, yeah, like basic communication, like you should be able to do that. And, it, and Pete says, our philosophy is we're going to do things better than they've ever been done before. <laughs> it's like, is that a philosophy? I'm not sure if that's a philosophy. It's a goal. It's an ideal. Um, and th- there are times where like there, there is some stuff that I'm fairly cynical person that would cause me to roll my eyes. But in covering him, you, I, I, I've come to understand really how, how he looks at the structure and culture of his team and why he thinks that's important. And, and basically that he's got the confidence in his system to always stick to it. And I'll be interested to see, because I've been really impressed from the outside how Kalen DeBoer runs things. I will say, uh, they still have painted in their meeting rooms. Our goal is to win the Pac-12 championship and win the bowl game. And that was Chris Peterson's thing that went up during the Peterson era. It's still there. I can't imagine that something that like high level and important um, would just still be there only because like, you know, DeBoer hasn't gotten around to reframing it for his own his own goal or whatever. So like, I, I think they've kind of, I think, I think that's carried over that they do talk about the national championship that like with this year with this team. And I think they feel really strongly that like they're going to be really good and they have the potential to win every game on their schedule. Um, but I don't think they go about goal setting on an annual basis for like, we must make the playoff and win the national championship or this was a failure. I think the goal is it, it stays pretty firm. Like, it's always like win the conference championship. And, you know, I would say like, it's, it's never less than that. Right. Like, I think that's the key. Like it's never, there's never going to be a year where they're like, eh, like let's, let's set the bar a little bit lower. You know, let's, let's just try to win eight games or, you know, whatever. Yeah, And you mentioned like coaches who, who coach, you know, fear-based programs. I do know. I mean, it's Kalen DeBoer's program is the opposite of that. Like they do talk a lot about like care and love and we were watching their videos. 
I think it was one that they put out after the Apple Cup and kind of their their pregame, and I think it was Ryan Grubb um, talking to the offense. I don't know if it was just the quarterbacks or the the whole offense pregame, but you know, talking about like you know we're gonna we're gonna win because we love each other more, and yeah, I, I think that stuff matters, and it is like a it's a it's a culture of positive reinforcement. It's funny you mentioned the the fear based uh, philosophy, and it reminds me of Office Space. Mm-hmm. When when Peter Gibbons is is talking to the Bobs, and he says it's a problem of motivation. All right, now if I work my ass off and in the tech ships a few extra units, I don't see another dime. So where's the motivation? And here's something else, Bob. I have eight different bosses right now, and he says he's got eight bosses. And he says so when I make a mistake, I have eight different people coming by to tell me about it. That's my only real motivation is not to be hassled. That and the fear of losing my job. But you know, Bob. That'll only make someone work just hard enough to not get fired. And that's what you're talking about. When you coach out of fear, guys are only going to play just hard enough to avoid your wrath. And that might not be good enough to win. And I think Kalen DeBoer understands that, and, and the culture is very much the opposite of that kind of thing. And I would, I would go a little bit further and say, it's not even just that might not be enough to win. That might not get the most out of that player that is possible that we know, and I say we know, social science researchers will tell you that people will try harder on behalf of someone else than they will on themselves. Like just just as a general rule, that doesn't mean that it always applies or there aren't selfish asses out there that won't do anything unless it benefits them. But as a general rule across human beings, it's generally accepted that on average, people will try harder on behalf of others than they will on themselves. In a team environment, that question is, how do you get those bonds between players strong enough and within the team to to have them feeling like that? That this is, and that's where you get like the topics of brotherhood and all of these, they are cliches. But that is like, to what you said about Chris Peterson, it's cliches for a reason. When you do get that, and every, every, t- I think most sports reporters have covered a team where they actually see that, where you're seeing like that, that team is capable and, and wins more or plays better than you would think it should based on the parts. It's, and it's the only reason I put any effort into this podcast. It's, it's for you, it's not for me. <laughs> I'm cutting you off. If it were just me, I'd be like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> uh, it's a, those are it's fascinating to watch how teams how teams do it because there are coaches who succeed. Like Bill Belichick is one, and it's oversimplifying to say he just coaches out of fear, but that's someone with a very corporate mindset. And it's like, yeah. look, we are going to be ruthless, and we are going to look to shave that two percent, the extra two percent that we're going to get out of it. If I can find someone younger and cheaper, I'm going to do it. If I think that I can get a better draft pick for for you than I think you're worth, I'm going to make the trade. And you have to be consistent in that. And and I think that's that's where most coaches, it's the difficulty comes in staying consistent with what you're telling your players that you value because players will sniff out and detect inconsistency for sure. It's a good question. And I, I like this. This is why I like this segment because you played the question and I thought, gosh, 
I don't have a great answer for that. I wish I knew. I wish I knew that better. But I think it's you know it spawned an interesting discussion. It was Danny worth a conversation. <laughs> It's worth a conversation. It's brought to you by Ian McFarlane, IP McFarlane Company. You can check them out at ipmcfarlane.com. It is worth a conversation. I want to read before we go um, one of our 169 reviews now on Hell Apple yeah. Podcasts, where we still hold a five-star rating. Rate the podcast if you haven't, please. I want to read a rating uh, that was left for us on Thursday by Seattle Dog Fan. It is a five-star rating. The... Uh, headline or subject line of the rating is five stars and this is the review five stars five stars five stars five five stars 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 i think that about sums it up it's the most accurate review of this podcast i've read yet um it really you know it's one of those things that just sometimes you see a piece of writing that just really resonates with you. It just sticks with you. And, um, you know, that's one I've got bookmarked. So I, we, we need to see some more people follow suit. And I told you last week, it, it, as, as we had the Callitz County Road Crew summary, that I was going to read you an exchange of letters this week that I had found particularly entertaining. <laughs> yes. From 1974. This is written by Dale O. Cox, who was a member of Rotzel and Andrews which was a law firm located in Akron, Ohio. It's addressed to the Cleveland Browns. Gentlemen, I am one of your season ticket holders who attends or tries to attend every game. It appears that one of the pastimes of several fans has become the sailing of paper airplanes, generally made out of the game program. As you know, there is the risk of serious eye injury and perhaps an ear injury as a result of such airplanes. I am sure that this has been called to your attention and that several of your ushers and policemen witnessed the same. Please be advised that since you are in a position to control or terminate such action on the part of fans, I will hold you responsible for any injury sustained by any person in my party attending one of your sporting events. It is hoped that this disrespectful and possibly dangerous activity will be terminated. Very truly yours, Dale O'Cox. The response came from James N. Bailey, general counsel of the Cleveland Browns. It was delivered, it appears, 13 days after the original uh, letter was, was, was dated. Dear, dear Mr. Cox, attached is a letter that we received on November 19th, 1974. I feel that you should be aware that some asshole is signing your name to stupid letters. Very <laughs> truly yours, Cleveland Stadium Corp. <laughs> Tried and true tactic. <laughs> Was there a response from Mr. O'Cox? No, that was the end. <laughs> was that in Was that in a newspaper? Uh, I don't know. I I've seen it online at a couple of different places. Um, right though, I'm looking at Snopes right now. Uh, so I'm not sure how based it came to light. Snopes is based in Tacoma. It is. No kidding. It wow, is. I didn't know it? that either until a couple of years ago. Do you know what Tacoma's? Uh, it might still be the motto. It was called the most wired city in America. Hmm. I haven't heard that one. Hope you enjoyed this week's discussion. Hope you come back next week for more. Until then, take care.